Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. have a grand problem or vision that you want to go solve, and they stumble on every little bit of the execution that we said, right? Whether I don't have the right talent at the table, I don't, I don't know my right commercial path, I don't know what partners to include, I don't know who else I should get ideas from or validate my solution with. And those are all small execution steps. But I would tell you, your commercial path at the end, if you don't have clarity on that, like you should stop right now because you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of capital and not be able to make your investors... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Tom Puthianidam which I'm not sure how, it got, how good I did on that pronunciation, so you're going to have to correct me. And, and my part-time co-host is back, George Brooks. George, for anybody not familiar with you, will you give just the one-second intro, and, and then I'll let you engage Tom here, and we'll start with learning about the secrets inside of PwC. I love it. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Yeah, my name is George Brooks. I'm one of the founders at a digital product agency called Crema in Kansas City and the host of another podcast called People of Product. So if you're interested in hearing the stories behind some of the people that are building some of the products that you love and use or the organizations that are doing some of the work that maybe doesn't get the, you know, the headline news, but actually is really what's changing the world, that's who we get a chance to talk to. So learn more at peopleofproduct.us or crema.us. And that's kind of me. But I, I'm excited for this conversation. To, I, just doing a little recon work on Tom. And it kind of, really, let's be honest, it's just kind of looking through your LinkedIn and kind of getting a sense of what matters to you. And the spectrum of the things that you've talked about from how great work gets done, how diversity is a part of the conversation, how, you know, how a legacy organization is talking about technology and product Maybe you could tell us just a quick, a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to this world of being in a hundred plus year old, how old is PwC? A very old company and how that now connects to, you know, what you're doing in your role with product. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, George and Jess. Hey, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a really quick introduction. 
I lead for PwC our product and solution innovation and strategy. So I've been uh, tasked with them building up, George is going to sound crazy, building up a $300 million product business at PwC over the last two and a half, three years. And, and that's tons of fun because for me, it's about I get a chance to listen to customers and teams in the field. We dream up what we can commercialize, commercialize. Mm-hmm. And hey, whether that means we've got to build trains or build spaceships, like we figure that out. And ultimately, you know, I spend most of my time to think about how we bring those solutions to market and get our teams to build fantastic solutions and products that we didn't have before. And yes, we've been around for 170 years. And yes, we're big, but this product business is new. And like I said, it's just tons of fun to innovate in a business that has been around for a long time. I'm curious, how did how did that 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 bridge come to be? How is it that, you know, PwC would decide we're going to step into this new world of product, of innovation, of technology. What, what was that story like? Or maybe, maybe, I guess, when your role kind of stepped into it, what did it look like? Yeah, I would say the simple thing was our clients just want a result, right? They want an outcome, whatever it might be. And you can define it however they want to define it. And, and I would tell you, there's no one wrote the rules that we had to get to that outcome with only bodies, rates, and hours. Like nobody wrote that. I mean, I don't know. That was never written when I came to PwC. But for some reason, we lived by those rules for 167 years. Mm-hmm. And we just thought maybe there's a better way to get to this answer. We have tremendous intellectual property. We offer it through human capital. Why does that need to be the case? Why can't we just translate that intellectual property that gets our clients the result they want, whether it's a better loyalty solution or whether it's a better financial reporting solution or a better compliance solution. Why not take that IP, plow it into a product, provide it to a client and say, this is yours, right? You don't need our bodies, our rates and hours. This is your product. This is your solution. Same outcome, but you get it right now through a product. So I would say it took some evolutionary thinking maybe, Maybe a little bit of a leap. I will tell you when we initially brought it up, I think I was maybe, I'm not saying snickered at or laughed at, but people definitely scratched in their head saying, is this really our core? Is this really our core business? And I would say, like, we're not building products randomly. We're building products that are part and core to our business. So close to the core, but it has to be technology product enabled. Believe that's doable. And yes, George, I'll tell you, they're plenty of people within 240,000 people globally that may not fully get it or fully believe in it. But frankly, like you got to lead, you got to jump out in front, you got to give it a go and see what happens. And luckily, we got successes today on the scoreboard that suggest that this thing can work. And the successes always feed to more opportunities. Only way. It's the only way. Everybody wants proof, right? And PwC, like, like we're recognized for trust and integrity. Like, this is what we, we put out in the marketplace. This is what we're we represent, hey, we live by that internally as well. So people want to trust that these are real outcomes. So I knew the first two years, we were not going to have a ton of supporters, not going to happen. But let's go out there and just do it, get some supporters at the executive level and give it a run. And now, you know, when you're when you're writing, hey, 300 million, people are going to say, hey, I'm going to pay attention to that thing. That's real, right? Let's pay attention now. I'm curious just for for the audience to understand because the, there's a there's a broad spectrum when we think about product innovation services. 
when how much of these products are you building your own is pwc building their own ip and deploying that similar to like a SaaS style product or software as a service style product and how much of it is that you're doing this as a service offering for your clients i would tell you george the way we look at it is we provide a solution to our clients it's a solution is it a product is it a service or frankly is it a blend yeah i would tell you we are not able to, in many of our products, we are not able to bake in all of our IP into that product. That product needs some human element to it. And frankly, we know this in the field, the best solutions out there are human and tech powered, right? So that's what we built. We built human and tech powered solutions. So whatever the outcome is, how much of it can be a product, how much can it be a human capital element to it? Ultimately, we package it as a SaaS or a managed service capability that clients can then have for one, two, three, five years on a sustainable basis. So that's how we package it up. Which is awesome because then you get to create these service line agreements that allow you to have, we're going to do whatever it takes. And just from someone who knows, because I build software with our clients right. as well, a lot, of, a lot of what you end up dealing with is, yes, you have a piece of technology but you don't have the teams in place to deploy it. You don't have the change management in place to, to make it work. You don't have the marketing or position to actually get it out to your customers, your audience or market. And it sounds like you guys can, because of the size of the organization, because of all the other offerings that PwC has, you can bring a lot of that to the table. That's right. That's right. I think when you, when you go into deeper joints, we're at 90 plus percent of the Fortune 500. Yeah. So you know the world of a startup. Startups, their biggest issue is not the idea, not the ability to build it, not the UX. The issue is access. Do I have distribution rights? Do I have trust within that distribution channel to get access and get a, get, just get a meeting, get, a, get like a seat at the table to someone to hear me out? And I think the reason why we accelerated so fast on the revenue curve is because our products were instantaneously put into our channel that has access to Fortune 500 buyers and that's what gets the business cranking to commercialize versus you know, building one of these great products. If I was my own you know, startup on my own, it would take me 10 years to get to the type of revenue run rate we're talking about. And if we're honest, most startups, you don't hear that story. It does take 10 years. You know, you're, you're saying that, but that's statistically true that it's anywhere between five to 10 years before a startup really ever gets the traction that we all know is famous. You know, there's a few companies that are less than that, but not many. There's a, there's no, a couple really need to be. There's a couple out here in Utah. One's called Qualtrics and one's called well, I'll start with I'll start with the Qualtrics one. They're like they call themselves like a 14-year bootstrapped startup, you know, and they just sold for 8 billion to SAP, right? And right. You know, that type of that type of trajectory is not something everybody has in mind, right? And yet nothing awesome gets built overnight. Some things certainly happen faster than others. Right. But, you know, there's another one out here, Pluralsight. They went public for, I think, three and a half billion, maybe uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago here. Same thing. You know, they were started within a year of the Qualtrics guy and they just they gutted it out. They took no investors up front. They're like over 13 years into it before they before they did that. Right. And there it's interesting hearing them talk at the tech conferences out here and they just they really preach it. They say, like, you know, not having tons of money and not having all of this stuff forces you to actually make something that makes money 
which is like the best mm. competitive advantage, right? I'm interested, Tom, can you tell us a success story? Can you talk about, we talked about Chipotle for, for a second. Can you tell us about them? Sure thing, Jess. So I think the fascinating thing about our journey, Jess and George, was okay, we were building products for ourselves. And we began like saying, we got to codify this thing, right? We got to make it easy, right? We got to get the language right because you know how it goes. When you get into product innovation land, you, you have to create a language that works for everybody because, you know, George, you're talking about mood boards and empathy maps, right? My technology guy is talking about, hey, I want to get these sprints laid out, right? And then, you know, Jess, you're coming in saying, well, we, we need a great business case and a commercial go-to-market strategy. And oftentimes, people understand those words at like the 30,000-foot level, but nobody really appreciates, like, what do those terms really mean? What does it mean to really get it done at each one of those bullet points. And so for Chipotle, what we decided is let's codify our product development approach and how we drive innovation. And simply stated, we created an acronym because we're a great consulting firm. We create acronyms. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Right. So we said, we're going to call this thing. Ready guys. We're going to call this thing BXT. It sounds so mysterious. Got an X in it. I mean, the so X hot. makes it really hot. Yeah. What, right? what does it stand yes. for? So we said B for business, X for experience, because we want to drop the E, and T for technology. But the whole point was, how do I get three teams to respectfully find a way to grow? Mm. Respectfully find a way to grow. And that's what BXT was about, because the reality is, George, you don't respect business people like Jess. Let's be real, right? I'm like, hey, I'm the innovator. I'm the designer. Jess, go, go find me some money, all right? Go find me some money and get out of my way, right? And then you talk to the technology guys like, you guys are great. You design fancy screens, but I have the AI technology. I know how the cloud stack works with AWS and so on. So we had to find a way to get everybody to respect everybody's diverse thought. And then let's crank that through the PwC product machine, which we did. We said, all right, now let's bring this, bring this to clients. So, you know, Chipotle just had to find a way to grow through having true customer data. They did not have a loyalty program. So we built their loyalty solution and product for them to take to market. And for them, that meant how do we bring, yes, people in sales, in the store, in finance together, I'd appreciate what we're trying to do with loyalty and the data within it. Yes, we had to have the designers there to say, this thing needs to be best in class, right? I mean, the loyalty programs out there, they're crisp, they're clean, right? They're at the, at the highest level of fidelity when it comes to design. George, right, you would appreciate that. Yep. And yep. then from a technology backbone, the technology wasn't like next level, like artificial intelligence by no means, but the core building blocks had to be in place for this thing to scale to millions of consumers. Mm -hmm. So we brought our team that was a B, X, and T team together. And likewise, so did Chipotle. And we went through that process to build a, a loyalty program that went live just advance of the pandemic. So think about that for a moment, guys. Oh, man. Oh, man. Right? Like timing, so critical. Right? Them launching their loyalty program at a moment where everybody's going to start ordering and now having consumer data to know what offers to provide and so forth. I mean, without it, they, they've done very well the last 12 months. Yeah. Partly because of the pandemic, but partly, I think, because they have consumer data through their loyalty engine that we have built in our BXD fashion. What does it look like? 
when you're working with them and bringing, you're bringing your team to the table, they're bringing their team to the table. And you talked a little bit, I'm fascinated by team dynamics. Okay. Cause I think that yeah. the reality is, is we're all in the business of people. We just happen to build technology, right. Or we just happen to offer financial services. What I'm curious about is what does it look like? And you mentioned it, that respectful conversation. How do you build that bridge? Because everybody has a competing agenda, a competing perspective and innovations about work in a different way. Right. Right. So how do people come together and actually do the best work of their lives together? Yeah. The simplicity, I think, of what we did, you know, I, I make fun of the acronym, but George, underneath it all, I, we really codified what it meant to work in this way, to appreciate diverse perspectives. Frankly, demystify it. Like mm -hmm. demystify it. Like, George, if I ask you, what is a mood board? Once you show it to people, like, hey, I get it. That makes complete sense. I don't know why we haven't done it for the last 10 years, right? But like we hide, we all hide. All of us as experts, we hide behind complicated business terms that we wanted to say, let's dumb it down, right? Let's get down to the essence of what we're doing and demystify it for everybody. Because as soon as you demystify it and understand others' sort of pattern language, like light bulbs go off, right? You begin to appreciate, you begin to respect what everybody brings to the table. So... Our BXT thing is a method, a true method that's been codified down to, I would say, like we have 50 different activities, George. George, when this pandemic ends, you and I are going to be in a room together and we're going to do something with the client together. Because when you see how we these 50 activities that we build forces people to work yeah. in a way that is truly diverse in nature and you get everybody's opinions heard right from the word go. And then you begin to take off. It's a really powerful thing. I mean, Google Ventures, you know, doing things like design sprints or these these activities Correct. that actually get people to have unique perspectives. It, it works. It really does work. Game on. I'll tell you, George, you know, the funny thing was, this is one of those moments where I can't disclose the client name. Yeah. Amazing, innovative company, right? Uh, put them in the retail space. And uh, European. That's all I could say. All right. right. Don't break the rules. Don't break the rules. I'm not breaking the rules. Uh, they're an exemplar at product innovation. Hmm. Exemplar, right? They turn over their SKUs to the tune of about 25% a year. Okay, think about that level of innovation cranking out every year. Yeah. They came to us last week and said, we need to be able to scale this innovative thinking and mindset across the enterprise. We're good in product innovation, but the problem is the rest of the organization do not appreciate the speed and the way we work because if everyone did appreciate the way we work, they would snap to the way our model is. So we are now talking to them saying, do you want to just lease and take our BXT method? And we will run a set of pilots across your enterprise in finance, in HR, in sales, in distribution, and so on. Because if we get them to work this way, we could actually have a tighter connection between product development and everybody else who supports the customer agenda. So I, I would say like, this is the opportunity we have in front of us. And that's like PwC generally, like, Hey, we built something for ourselves. We're like, well, let's, let's give it to the world. Right. So that's where right. we're at right now. We're taking this BXT method and saying, let's give it to the world. Anybody who wants to innovate across the enterprise, not just product development, take it. Right. Cause you'll have a new way of working from day one. And I, I honestly, I'm, I, I want to spend so much more time on that, but I want to, I want to move forward to kind of hear about, I'd love to learn more about the, what if, what are types of products that you've built for yourself when you start thinking about, oftentimes consultants, get to that all their focus is on like external, like we are serving the client, we're building products for the client. Yeah. 
But what does it look like to innovate on yourself? I mean, you're a massive organization with this legacy way of thinking and working. How do you innovate in, inside? I'll share two examples that are connected, maybe, George, right? Just of products that we built and we've taken outside. Yeah. So if you guys remember during the Me Too movement, there were a lot of questions, concerns about hotel employee safety, mm-hmm. a real issue, right? And we thought, like, how do you actually protect maid staff and hotel employees that are sitting in this vast hotel and, right, going room to room? And who knows what their encounters are, right? So we have a, an IoT business, which we call our connected solutions business. And we came with a solution because certain cities and states began to pass law saying, hey, Hotel XYZ, you need to be able to provide a safety solution for your hotel employees. So we said, all right, well, let's see where we, we could use our innovative approach and this sort of technology stack we built to create a solution. So we created, essentially, it looks like a, like a, a beeper, but it's a small little, what we call the housekeeper alert button. Mm. And it uses IoT technology where we are able to understand if there's a distress, we know that distress is on the 12th floor in room 1205 with that level of precision. Cool. Right. The cool thing about that was as, as cities and states began to pass these ordinances, hotels are saying, well, hey, we need a solution overnight. So that was the starting point of that. Rewind back 14 months, George, we took that same solution and that same stack. And this is how you can innovate at scale and speed. Right, We got to innovate at scale and speed. We took that same technology stack and created an automatic contact tracing solution. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I've not traveled for 14 months until two weeks ago. And this solution, we're offering to clients, but we have it as PwC employees as well. I went down to our office down in Florida. We were in a conference room. Like everybody was eight feet apart, masks on, right? The whole suite. But but that weekend, I got a note saying, Tom, someone in this office actually came down with COVID. However, due to the contact tracing solution, you were not within the vicinity of this individual. So you rest assured, this is just a courtesy notice. So my point is, but that product, George, we pumped that out in three months because we had the tech stack already ready to go. We pumped out an automatic contract tracing solution, well de- well designed, George, I respect yep. the design, right? But the technology <laughs> stack was there and we got it out in three months. So like, this is what you can do. When you got a culture that's ready to innovate and move at speed, you can pump out and be responsive in three month increments if you so chose. And it works, right? For me personally, big difference. Last weekend, when I was able to tell my wife, guess what? I had an exposure, but I was in you know, a safe zone. I was not in the blast radius of that one individual. That's pretty awesome. Tom, you know, my my thought here is I'm obviously a fan of innovation. I named this show Innovation. I've done 600 episodes interviewing people about innovation and their leadership and stuff. And yet... I, I, you know, I read tons of books. I watch endless YouTube videos and I still get cynical about, I still get cynical about people labeling just anything innovation, you know, any kind of change they want to, they want to, there's a lot of exaggerating about what's innovative. It's like, no, that's just 5% different than the last time, you know? Right. And then, and then I also get to talk to some people who are doing stuff that is genuinely different. It is not a, it's not an incremental increase. It is a drastic step change. And those people are endlessly fascinating to me. So I keep trying to have more of them on the show, right? So right. 
when you think about the principles that help create drastic step forwards instead of incremental steps forward, what are those principles to you? Or what are some of them? I would say the, the number one thing for me, Jess, is uh, the term I use is relevant disruption. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of people that come up with disruptive ideas. Not a whole lot of them are relevant, mm-hmm. right? And and because of that, they don't become a success in all honesty. So it's just a grand idea. Can it be a strategic moneymaker? Will our customers love it? Will they pay for it, right? Will the sales channel drive it for us? Frankly, will our employees love it? Will recruits plow into us because they want to join in that journey? Because my prior example about our connected solutions business, I'm telling you, people want to plow into that business because of the impact we're making. It's relevant, right? And it's like people want to tell their family, Jess, right? Hey, guess what? We did this and this is out there and it's making an impact. So I think for me, like big breakthrough innovation, and not to use that so liberally, like you said, it's not worth it using liberally because it once you use it so liberally, it loses all its value, right? Mm-hmm. But for the people that are really getting it done, they're doing something that's disruptive, that is massively relevant to create some impact in the market that everybody will gravitate to, employees, customers, right? So on and so on. Yeah. You know, I just had this guy on the show. Like, I don't know how much you guys- So that's where like my head's at. That's what kind of dictates my decision. Yeah. You know, for me, I think about that, like, I just had somebody on the show who is 3D printing houses in New York, okay? He's got, like, an enormous, an enormous 3D printer hooked up to a cement truck, and they 3D print the walls, and it just, like, leaves spaces for the windows and the and the plumbing and stuff. And, like, you know, I don't know if you guys are aware, but lumber has, like, tripled this year, right? And uh, everybody's right. trying to build a house because rates are so cheap. So, you know, there's just, like... It's kind of pandemonium in the building world. And here he is with like such an incredible structural advantage of of being able to print the house with cheap concrete instead of, you know, 300% cost lumber. And, you know, he just like, to me, those are the things that are, that are fascinating. When you think about somebody that you look up to with, with drastic innovation, any, anybody stand out to you as like, man, these are guys that inspire me. Jess, let me tell you why I love, love that question, because I, I'm generally obsessed in reading about every founder, right? Every founder that's written a book out there, I, I read it. I just, want, I just want to know their journey. Everything buddy from Phil Knight to Bob Iger, right? They all have fascinating stories. And I, I would tell you what I love the most, I was, I was saying it was, it was like Bob Iger's story a little bit. I, if you guys read the book, I mean, one thing he said that I appreciate, and no different than your story about the, you know, the 3D printing. We want to go after issues that are built and designed for scale. Like mass impact, right? Like you can make a massive impact. I'm in, sign me up, right? And let's go after those big problems. And one thing he said was, hey, don't try to be the trombone oil salesman. It's just like, hey, trombones are important, but there's not enough of them in the world for you to actually go make a lot of money on it. So even if you find a better way to lubricate a trombone, it's like, it's a trombone, right? Uh, there's not enough. So like for me, like I really appreciated that perspective of like, like you could go after a lot of niche ideas and you could innovate, you could be disruptive, but are you going to make massive scale impact? Because if you're not, it, it's not worth it. 
you spend all that energy and time over these little small things. So for me, I, I'm always thinking about and focused on, hey, what are the big ideas we can go after that'll move this planet, move a large group of people? So that's where my fixation is. And some of those sounds like, hey, Tom, it looks like you're swinging for grand slams all the time. Not necessarily, right? Some of them are doubles and triples, but I know they have the potential to be more. And that's where my head's at. I'm curious, what do you think people, and, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier that, you know, what certain percentage of ideas never see the light of day. There's no shortage of ideas. That's right. So what are people getting wrong when they're, when they're trying to do this big innovative work, when they're trying to, to, you know, do something at scale, what, what's, what's keeping, keeping them from actually executing well? It's good, George. I, I think that question is making me think a few ways because I, oftentimes I feel like what teams or individuals struggle with, they don't see the end and work their way back. Like they don't know how big their idea is or they don't know how small their idea is initially. It's just they come up with something unique and they see a problem, right? They see a problem and they want to go fix it. And the best innovators are guys and gals who want to fix something. And while that's admirable and good, they have to be able to see through the end. And I, I tell you, that's where... I spend my time for a reason. I spend my time on where can we make big commercial hits? And if they're big commercial hits, then, then I know I saw this thing through the end. I know what the end state is going to look like. And I work my way back in many, many iterations and, and steps to find a way to get there. So I think that's where teams fail, number one. And then number two is, yes, on, on the execution of it all. You have a grand problem or vision that you want to go solve. And they stumble on every little bit of the execution that we said, right? Whether I don't have the right talent at the table, I don't, my, don't know my right commercial path, I don't know what partners to include, I don't know who else I should get ideas from or validate my solution with. And those are all small execution steps. But I would tell you, your commercial path at the end, if you don't have clarity on that, like you should stop right now because you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of capital and not be able to make your investors satisfied at all. Which then comes back to, you know, all this work is a marathon, not a sprint. Even though you're talking about, you know, quick wins, where you're able to kind of take IP or our ideas and actually put them into execution, the long tail of this work is that piece of technology is going to be a a living creature for a long time that you got to feed and continue to fund. And and so you've got to get buy-in. What is... What does buy-in look like? Uh, you kind of you've touched on it a couple of times. But what does buy-in look like when you're trying to take on these big and innovative projects? For PwC, I would tell you the number one thing I look for in buy-in is the the distribution channel. Hmm. So, is the distribution channel going to love what we're building? I, I start there because if I if I can't get the distribution channel, coming back to my original point, we build solutions. And the reason why we took it from zero to 300 million in a very short window is that the distribution channel was there for us. So just as much as your customers may love it, you need to get your sales force to love what you're going to be putting out there. And if that's your route to market, right? Once again, is that your route to market? Then make sure they love it just as much as your customer love it. If you're going direct to consumer, then your fixation is with the customer. How many customers are going to sign up for this thing today? How many of you really talked to? Have you talked to 500 customers, 200 customers? Like or is it just you and your dog you talked to and you figured out it was a good idea? I mean, your mom I mean, says that your mom's always going to tell you that your ideas are great. That's right. So you get, you need to put some, I would say, real challengers around you if you don't have it. 
Yeah. At PwC, I have a ton of challengers. I have 3,800 partners in the U.S. who want to challenge me all the time, right? Say, Tom, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Make it better. That's good. I mean, that's a good challenge to have. But if you're an independent and you live in your, you know, your parents' basement and all you have is two parents saying how great you are, like, God bless you if that's going to be a great idea. Right, right. You know, Tom, my, my question there is I'm interested in your approach, this idea of really knowing that, that the audience wants it, that the customers want it, that the distribution channel wants it, however you want to call it. When you think about testing that, when you think about verifying or validating experiments there before plowing all the cash in, what, what does that look like for you or what do you recommend? So I think no different than anybody else out there, we put stage gates out there. And those stage gates need to be met with certain thresholds in order to get the next round of funding. So we're in the middle of building a new product right now, Jess, focused on marketing and media cost management, if you will. And great idea, tremendous need out there, right? Just on the value of media spend and so forth. And I said, guys, this is grand. I love it conceptually. The algos are already built, right? You guys have some pre-existing IP that we could rock with. Great. I want you to now identify who are the 40 customers are going to go to because I have access to 40 customers today. I get access to 500, but I want 40 calls with clients today. And guys, in the first quarter, I want five wins. Five wins, even with our Jess, our duct tape product, right? It's not even, it's not even MVP. It's duct tape together. Like, will our yeah. clients appreciate the output of these duct tape solutions? And I would tell you, by pushing the team, and the team will tell you they needed this push a little bit from me, we got... It's about seven wins so far in about a 60-day cycle. The goal is four. They got their next round of funding. And now they, they're they building out a go-to-market plan with our product strategy team to say, how do we begin to expand this to three, 400 clients who have significant media spend that they want to think about? Mm. So I know, Jess, next year, this team will rack in another probably 30 to 40 customer acquisitions. I know that for a fact. Right. The clients they've hit are cross industry, all have tremendous value. They're trying to, I would say, pull in from all the, I would say, unaccounted for spend in media. So this is a winner, right? Complete winner. But we we approached them saying, you gotta have customer, not testimonials. I want contracts based on a solution that's to be to be finalized, right? But they see it today and see what it is. We had a strategist for a long time that would say, yeah, you can get people to say, cool, I'll use that when it's ready. I'll cool. I'll use that when it's ready. And then immediately ask them for the credit card. Yeah. Ask them to pay for it. Yeah. Pay for it now, you know, pay up front and we'll, we'll, you'll be exclusive rights or something. You'll be in on it first, whatever. And then the conversation immediately changes, right? Because you see where you see where value is. I, I, George, I tell you, the many teams have come forward saying, Hey, we presented this thing at a conference. 42 people sat there and they loved it. I'm like, great. You got a petition. Petitions, not votes, right? Mm. Petitions, not payroll, right? Not going to make payroll. So I think teams are getting it more and more. The tough part is, George, now everybody knows our formula. So they come in like preloaded, like, Tom, here's our idea. We have seven customers already rocking, ready to sign up tomorrow, which for me, some people say, Tom, you're, you're unlocking your investment criteria. Mm. I'm like, guess what? I'll buy Providing transparency to our investment criteria makes this process a whole lot more efficient, right? Given that level of transparency, people are coming into our front door saying, Tom, I already met all your criteria. The application is ready to go. And for us, that's like, that's great. We get to go that much faster to the point of 
break even commercialization on any of our investments because of that versus coaching them, right? Because coaching them and bringing them up to speed is great. Guys, that's like three, four months of time to get there. That onboarding time is, is waste. It's just waste. Correct. I'm curious. I have to ask the question because it's part of what we think about when we're positioning Crema. And, and really, we talk to a lot of organizations because they're all struggling because there's a big talent. Quote, unquote, there's a big talent gap. Right. This yeah. is this is the this is your you've got teams that are bringing you ideas. You have a a process and approach to solve creating those ideas, validating those ideas, distributing those ideas. How do you get the talent to actually get it done? Well, George, we we built a team of five six hundred people, and George, this could be music to your ears. We also find third party partners who can actually augment and get the job done. <laughs> I mean, I know some guys. Uh, yeah. no, that's, that's great. That's great. I love that. I love that model. And then honestly, I think that is the future of work, right? That we yeah. are going to be working as, a, as networks. That's right. You have to. And uh, I'm a big believer in it. We have a lot of third-party labor, of course, a lot of flex labor out there. Yep. We yep. want to be part of big enterprise, tremendously innovative talent. So we tap into that definitively. That's part of our sort of overall right. human capital approach and strategy. But we have a handful of strategic partners that will also outsource the full design and build to because, frankly, we can't handle it all. And for the sake of time and speed, you have to do it, right? You got to move quickly. You can't always try to resource up and get the job done. Yeah, that's great. You know, Tom, I look at, you know, 240,000 employees or whatever it is, and there's very few people that have risen to your level in the organization, and there's probably a lot more that wanted to than actually did, right? So when you think about what you've done differently to accomplish what you have, maybe compared to other folks, what do you think you've done different? I'm thinking just because I've been here 24 years. And I will tell you two things have, have worked well for me looking back. One, I've had tremendous mentors and sponsors who've, who've given me the rope. But two, I will tell you, I've not been fussed the last 10 or 12 years in being laughed at. Hmm. Like being willing to get in front of the room with a bunch of individuals who maybe see the world differently than you or maybe more conservatively than you, to be fair, right? And and there have been moments where I've legitimately been, like I said, like, like wow, Tom, that's a great idea. Like, why don't you uh, continue to do it in your little corner of the world, but don't try to bring it to our side of the business. And uh, you got to be okay with that. You 100% need to be okay with that. And you got to prove it to others. And I, I'm I just, I'm up for the challenge every time to be, hey, guess what? You think I need to be put on the waiting list or be put in a holding queue? I, I get it, but I'm going to, I'm going to come back and I'm going to win you over. So I would tell you that persistence and being willing to, get, to put yourself out there with a little bit of risk. And get a little bit of the ridicule, get a little bit of the laughter, but just push, right? And I know I had the benefit of having great mentors to give me the air cover to do that. Can everybody has that safety net? But I had that safety net, or at least I felt I had that safety net the whole time. So I just went out there and gave it a go and, and try to bring others along. I'm interested in how you deal with discouragement. I think for entrepreneurs so often, we're resource constrained or we haven't raised enough money or we don't have enough staff or things like that. And then in big companies, we're like bureaucracy constrained. And it's like, oh, there's such a good thing. It's just waiting right here. 
why can't you know why can't people see it why why should it why could it possibly take this long to make a decision things like that so we we all have our we all have our challenges to overcome right i'm interested for you like what what does that look like when when you have the temptations to be down in the dumps what what is tom's version of like putting a little jet fuel and and getting back on the horse my my recipe is one i have to work out every day every morning i exercise all my frustrations out I, every morning for 40 minutes, I get it out there, Jess. And from that point forward, I'm in good spirits. In, in all seriousness, right? For me, it's so important because I do believe, Jess, you, George, we all have a responsibility to insulate our teams from the big machine. Like We're a big enterprise, right? And there's a lot of benefits in being the big enterprise. But we want the teams to move at a different cycle, right? They got to move at a different speed. So part of my job, I feel, is to insulate the team from the big machine at times and let them work at the innovation speed we want them to. And then I handle the big machine and interaction with that because I'm telling you, there's a lot of benefits being part of the big machine. We're not worried about next week's payroll. Everybody has benefits. We're not going to go out of business, right? A lot of benefits come with it. And to be a fully funded startup within PwC like we are feels grand. It does really because we're able to work at the freedom, the pace and the speed that we want and we got the backers of big PwC to make sure we're taken care of. And we got to produce a return, of course, right? If we don't produce a return, we should be shut off as well. But so far, so good. You you said this earlier, and I think it connects to kind of your your posture as you think about what's led you to your success, how you you block and tackle for your teams. And you brought up the word access. And I'm fascinated by this word because I think a lot of people either complain that they don't have access or they make excuses for not having access. But you seem to me like you'd be one of those those individuals that has no no issue asking for access. Like, hey, why can't I just pick up the phone and call that person and and ask? Jess and I talk about this on a regular basis. Like, there's a certain point where people just don't want to step into that discomfort to say, "Hey, will you give me 10% off on that?" You know, like I, there's, I'm not remember, I'm, I've got a stack of books around me. I don't remember where this comes from, but there's, there's a, there's a, somebody was talking about habits and discipline. Right. And the idea was if you want to learn to step out of your discomfort zone, every time you order a coffee, ask for 10% off, just ask, like, just get used to kind of doing this thing. I'm curious how much of, of your building out this organization, building out this, this team of product votes, stepping into these opportunities that you have to work with their client, your client base, which is also sacred, right? And introducing them new products and ideas. How much of that is stepping into that discomfort to just ask, ask for access? Well, I think in two ways about it, George, one way is I think if you want to be a great innovator, you got to have like, you got to be 2% mischievous, right? You have to be, right? You got to be the person who's willing to break something. I'm saying small things, never any hard lines, never any ethics violations or integrity issues, but are you willing to just stretch and bend the rules a little bit to see how far we can go, right? So that's the point. 2% mischievousness, I think gets you a long way to asking for a 10% discount, asking hey, can we stand up this product business and give me a little bit of seed money to get it going? Like, you got to be able to do that. Because if you don't do that, then I believe you don't believe in mm-hmm. what you're asking for, right? You don't have the conviction. And who invests in anybody that doesn't have conviction or belief in themselves or the idea? 
So there are teams that come up to my, our front door often where like someone need to put you up to this because it doesn't seem like you believe in your own idea. Right. Yeah, so yeah. like that's where my head's at. Like, like how much do you really want it? And are you 2% mischievous to say, I'm willing to do what it takes to get this thing over the line. I love like that. call me, text me in the middle of the night. Like, like, you know, be so persistent. Right. Cause that's mischievous texting me at 10 o'clock at night saying, Hey, we have a product review with you, Tom. I want to give you a heads up. I'm like, like 10 o'clock at night, you're texting me. <laughs> that's the 2% mischievous that I like. Right. <laughs> that's awesome. Tom, we've got a couple minutes here left. What is something that's a soapbox issue for you or what's something you don't get asked enough. You wish people would ask you more. Wow. I get asked a lot of questions. I get asked a lot of questions, Jess. So uh, there are many questions I feel like, you know, I wish they asked me more of, but, but one thing that, that does come to mind is people have asked a few times, yeah, Tom, how did you make this thing work within PwC? And they always sort of skip over the cultural point. Because everyone thinks culture is soft, right? And fuzzy. But I'll tell you, Jess, that I, I, I wish people asked more and dug into more in the culture of the team that we built and why is it so special and unique? Why do we have high retention? Why do people believe in what we're doing? And yeah, for me, like coming back to this whole, you know, BXT method and way of working, it's not just a method. It, it is inoculated this team with a culture and a belief that, hey, new rules apply to us. A new set of rules apply to us. And, and that's what it takes, I think, to get a business off the ground as fast as we did. Like if you don't have that type of culture and that sort of esprit de corps, it doesn't happen. And I think what we did in sort of, you know, productizing this BXD thing, making it a method, a culture, a way of, like working and believing in how you should wake up every morning. That's the formula. New product ideas come and go. But the team and the culture is what actually sustains the fuel of the engine. So for us, like getting this BXT thing to crank is what, what's made it real. And I wish more people talked about that and asked about it. I love it. Well, George, anything you want to end with? No, Tom, I feel like we have some conversations to have offline. So I did this. No, thank you for the, for the time. This has been such a pleasure. And honestly, I can tell just from your heart, from how your posture that you care deeply about your culture. And just even from what you put out online that you do care about your people, which again, going back to that's what I'm passionate about is that we're in the business of people that, and if you unlock the, unlock the potential of a person, you can literally change the world. And it seems like you're doing that. That's right. Thank you, George. Thanks, Jess. This has been great. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye now.